0: In John 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. This matters. Is it secrecy? Is it courage? Why does he come at night? You can debate it either way, but I think it's secrecy. Because I think he's riddled with shame. I'll explain. Nicodemus is a man of the Pharisees. He's a proud member of the Torah-observing Jewish group who've assumed major leadership positions following the destruction of Jerusalem's temple during the Old Testament. His name, it means conqueror of the people. Scripture loves for the names of characters to have connections with their plot lines. And so Nicodemus is said to be a ruler of the Jews, which puts him in the upper class probably even a member of the judicial court known as the Sanhedrin. He's an unmistakably mature man. Yet, he's coming to Jesus at night, in private, clouded with unknowing, desperate for truth and filled with shame. This is his dark night of the soul, and you can feel it. You need to read the full chapter to appreciate the darkness Nicodemus' night holds, and the beauty of he and Jesus' back-and-forth conversation. But I want to point your attention to the very end. In verse 21, Jesus is talking about people who are able to step into the light and the good deeds that they do. And then it jumps to verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. In other words, The scene ends and we don't know what happens to Nicodemus. There's no resolution, no follow-up. The story just ends, making us wonder, can we really let go of shame? Now I say this is shame here because the context alludes to it. Nicodemus wants to know how Jesus is able to do the miracles he's doing. Jesus answers, but then Nicodemus questions it. Jesus answers again, then he questions it again, and then Jesus has a concluding statement. That's the structure of the chapter. Now keep in mind, Jesus has already turned over the tables in the temple in John 2. He also turned water into wine. He's healing and teaching and baptizing, and his disciples are participating in it too. Nicodemus is gobsmacked at what Jesus has been able to do, and you feel the pull that Jesus is having on his heart, but he's just not quite ready to let it all go and to follow. Now, let's just read it, and I think you'll see what I mean. I'm gonna start in verse 11. This is Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things, and you do not believe? How can I, you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, so that everyone who believes in Him may not perish, but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Those who believe in Him are not condemned, and those who do not believe are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil, For all who do evil hate the light and do not come into the light, so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. Did you make the connection to light and dark? There's a bunch of that here. Jesus says those willing to step into the light will see the goodness of this world. But there are also others who don't step into the light because their deeds are evil. This is why I say Nicodemus is experiencing shame. He comes at night embattled about whether he can take what he's learning into the light. And his unceremonious exit well, it feels like we get our answer if he can do that or not. It's kind of a tragic tale of someone who wants to do good, and they find God fascinating. And clearly, Nicodemus is on a quest, and he's in search of deeper meaning and a brighter light. You can almost feel him wanting to take Jesus' message of grace and salvation and step into the light. But that would mean he'd have to go up and against the power brokers and stakeholders that helped him get to where he was. So he doesn't. Up to this point, all Nicodemus had to do was follow the law, live by the law, teach others the law. It's all rule-oriented, outward-focused, and piously critiqued. Everything has a box. Everything fits neatly in that box if you follow the law. And if something doesn't fit, well, Nicodemus sits on the Judiciary Committee that decides what to do if it doesn't. But then comes Jesus, talking about being born again from above with the Spirit and shining a light in a dark world. And a God who loves the whole cosmos and ushering in a new kingdom of love and grace. It's all mysterious and new. It's not old or rigid. It's available to people on the margins and the apex of power. It's not with the elite or the educated. It's for everyone. Jesus is inaugurating a completely different paradigm. There's light and love and hope and grace, and it starts from the interior of our lives. Anyone can access it. It doesn't need overlords or religious elite. It's an inward transformation, a life change. Those who believe in me, he says, not those who just do the right things or follow the law. This interior change then moves out into the world, changing the systems and kingdoms by infusing love over law. And this shift is colossal, and Nicodemus isn't ready to make it. So he walks away back into the night, and we're left wondering if we really can let go of our shame. A few years ago, I came across a book by Richard Rohr called Falling Upward, The Spirituality of the Two Halves of Life. The subtitle says what we need to know. There are two halves of life. In the first half of life, Rohr says we exhaust our spiritual energy building our container. We focus on growth and success and becoming and career. The object of our desire is to build ourselves in a way that belongs and functions in the world. Our quest for spirituality is the building of our container. This is more rule-based outwardly focused, law prescribing spirituality. We do this and don't do this. We make sure we have this or think towards this and you'll build your container sturdy and strong in the world and God will be appeased. Now Rohr admits everyone starts with this and it's necessary. It's not wrong. All forms of spirituality start in the first half of life And we're not talking about age. This is the first half of your spiritual life. You're learning the boundaries, the rules, the lifestyle, and you're working on shaping your life accordingly. But the first half of life is only the beginning. It's not intended to be sustained. For those abled enough to move to the second half of life, experience a game-changing shift. They stop focusing on building and securing their container. And they shift to the things they want in the container. Goodness, hope, joy, justice, creativity, love. Now we can talk more about these two halves of life and at length some other time. Perhaps we'll do a book study on it. But I think you get the point. And you can make the connection to Nicodemus. His dark night of the soul happened because the first half of his life no longer functioned for him the way it was intended. Eventually, the rules of the building and the maintaining and the posturing gave way. Eventually, that form of spirituality always breaks down. It doesn't last. It's not evil or unnecessary. It just doesn't last. And you either have to step into the deeper mysteries of faith, into the goodness and grace found within the container or you abandon faith altogether. I think that's why some people walk away from spirituality and even church. Their first half of life took them as far as it could go and they don't know how to transition into the mystery of the second half. So they walk away. They abandon it all. Now there are some who hunker down and just stay stuck in the first half of life, unwilling to do the deeper dive into the spiritual container. Those people maintain rigidity in their faith. They shame and ridicule and even bully others who don't act or look like them. They even shame themselves when they break a rule or fall short. Faith is only about what is perceived on the outside. It's not an inward journey to the soul. Adults who are stuck in the first half of life They end up being mean-spirited, and they're like the ones who Jesus says are unwilling to step out of the dark and into the light. So this is Nicodemus' dilemma. He's transitioning into the second half of life. Spirit and belief and being born again in light, it matters more than law and customs. And he's left to decide if he can make the jump. But the story ends without us knowing if he ever does. And all of this begs the question, can you make the jump? Can you switch from an outward spirituality that cares about laws and rules and behaviors only? And can you shift to examining what it is that's in your container? I hope so. I think this is what it means to be born again, to be born anew to go into the container of spirituality and examine the good fruit that you bear in the second half of life. If you're going to do this, though, we'll have to let go of our shame. Shame is that voice that pulls us back to the first half, keeps us from making the jump, and tells us on repeat we're worthless and wretched. If we can let that go, then that's where we'll start seeing light and love, and grace, and then we'll dance on the edge of mystery. But to do this, we'll have to take our spirituality inward, into our soul, into the container to see the person we really are. And when we do, we'll see spirituality is less about behavior and rules, although that matters. It's more about an inward rebirth and renewal of the soul. So, Can you make the jump? Can you let go of your shame?